Welcome to the number one South Asian radio station in North America. Ruckus Avenue Radio. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by pediatric trauma surgeon and gun violence prevention researcher, Dr. Bindi Naik Mathuria. Stay tuned. By the time you will have finished listening to this podcast, two more Americans will have died from gun violence, something that was preventable, something that completely did not need to happen. In 2021, so far as of June 2nd, and me recording this, there have been 635 children killed out of a total of 18,321 gun-related deaths overall. For a pediatrician like me, this is baffling, that unlike many other countries, we are unable to make upstream change in the name of public health, safety, and well-being, and move past the sentiment of the 1770s where arming ourselves with muskets was of some value. These days, like in most policy, political, and economic arena, compelling data must be part of the story. And thankfully, there are leaders like Dr. Bindi Naik Mathuria, who are making strides in bringing gun violence prevention research and data to the forefront of progress on this issue. Bindi was born in Kenya and came with her family to Houston for high school when she was 14. Going through high school, college, medical school, and surgical training in Houston has given her firsthand perspective within a Texan culture and her deep and direct experience as a pediatric trauma surgeon caring for complex gunshot victims places her at the front line of caring for gun violence victims and their families. Bindi recently was awarded a CDC grant to study the epidemiologic story of gun violence and target risk factors with more precision from a public health lens, similar to how COVID-19 risk research has been conducted. This comes after nearly 25 years of political and policy gridlock here, stalling important research while nearly daily mass shootings and gun violence continue. We recently chatted and I asked her first about the daily numbness that so many feel when confronting this issue. Yeah, I know it's really sad. I mean, the fact that we have had a mass shooting almost every single day, it seems like recently is, um, it's, it almost makes it worse as, as far as normalizing goes because you're like, ah, oh, just another shooting. You know, when you say the shooting, no one will know which shooting you're talking about anymore, right? Whereas if you remember, um, you know, many years ago, obviously Sandy Hook and Colorado and this and that. I mean, you can name those shootings because they were on TV all the time and there was so much talk about them. And now there's so many that the media barely covers them. You know, I think that in, in a sense, it's... Um, it is normalized and people are really numb to it. And, and, you know, it's not like, I think people look away, they're sad about it, right? They're sad about it. It's hurtful, but I think it just becomes one of those things like, Oh, well, Here we go again. You, that sucks. What can you do about it? You know, it's yeah. like, like gang violence or something. Okay. Yeah. That's terrible or poverty or hunger. Right. Until, so, until the yeah. next sort of piece hits somewhere that's slightly closer to your orbit, Until right? It happens to you. That's yep. exactly right. And I mean, as someone who has faced this um, on an ongoing basis, and and you get this in 
sort of the trauma service, you know, have you have you found that at least communicating with people about this has changed over the last couple of years because it's it's perhaps you know become that kind of normalcy of people saying, well, it sucks, but um, what can I do about it? Right. So, I mean, mass shootings are just the tip of the iceberg, right? That's yeah. what you hear about in the news. But that's there's a lot more regular shootings every single day. And no one even talks about those at all, you know? Right. So, I mean, I have not seen a mass shooting victim. And I've been in trauma for almost 20 years now, including residency. Yeah. And um, But I've seen tons and tons of other people and children that were shot, you know? And so, um, and so... It's bigger. It's bigger than it is, but it's it's. If you turn, I don't know how the news. You, you live in San Francisco, right? I'm I'm yeah. not sure how the news is there. If you turn on the Houston news, I can't even let my kids watch the Houston news because right. all they talk about is one shooting after the next, after the next, after the next, and it's just too sad, you yeah. know. Um, and so I don't know what the right answer is from a media perspective. I mean, they 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 do talk about it, but what it's it's like everyone feels helpless. I think it's it's. I mean, it's just a it's a systemic problem. And I thought it was interesting that last year with the pandemic, there was very few mass shootings, if any. Because our focus perhaps and attention were were on morbidities and, and things that, you know, perhaps changed that narrative a little bit. And yet, you know, it didn't it didn't really change it, right? I mean, we're kind of back where we started a year plus later. And well, violence is actually worse. So yeah. violence not not just mass shootings. I'm talking about daily street violence in Houston. I saw a quote the other day that said it was 25. It was the worst it's been in 25 years. Mm. And so, and that has to do with, um, probably has to do with the, you know, depression or recession, increased poverty. There's so many social factors that go with that, you know? Right. Um, But it's just, it's just really sad. I mean, it's just, it went, I mean, when you yourself are, like I, you know, um, grew up in Africa actually, and and I go back to Africa often, um, and sometimes I actually feel safer there than I do in America. Right, right. In a third world country, you know. Well, and <laughs> and I mean, is that you know that sense of helplessness that you mentioned, where people yeah. are just kind of like, hey, you know, I can't control what's around me. Do you find that when you are either traveling abroad or or visiting, you know, Kenya, um, is there a sense where like, you know, gosh, we, we just can't relate to what you guys go through in the States. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, England is a perfect example, right? England is so similar to America and they don't worry. They don't have to worry about getting shot, going down the street or going to a movie theater or going to a concert or anywhere else. Yeah. And it's just, it is definitely uniquely an American problem. So. I did a, um, I did a public health tour in Cuba many years ago as, as a medical educator. And one of the things that I was, you know, focused on at that time was really thinking about how do we educate, you know, other physicians about um, you know, gun violence and, and even violence prevention. Mm-hmm. When I brought this topic up to, to those folks over there, they were like, what are you talking about? Not, I mean, not our issue. Yeah. yeah it's just the, you know, a completely foreign concept. And, yeah. and in thinking about it for you as someone who, you know, had a significant amount of your formative years outside of this country, um, when do you first remember sort of being hit by this topic? Sure. I mean, probably in residency, my, in my residency, one of the busiest trauma centers um, in the country. And there was, you know, people getting shot and every night, shootings yeah. and stabbings. We call it the gun and knife club. But, um, but I think when it really hit home was Sandy Hook. 
I mean, the fact that, you know, children, kindergartners could just be shot down like that. And more importantly, the fact that nothing changed after that, you know, it's kind of like, how much worse does it need to get? Well, I guess right. I guess it gets, needs to get as worse as daily mass shootings. I don't know. Um, but it's very, fr- that's when I realized the, I guess, the political challenges and things like that. Sure. That, that are um, so uniquely American and were really hard for me to understand in the beginning. Well, you know, reflecting on that, it did Sandy Hook and, you know, the experiences that you've had either in residency or training or now as a, really experienced trauma surgeon um, in pediatrics, mm-hmm. reflecting on even being a, a high schooler in, in Texas or, or, you know, spending a lot of your, your own educational years in Texas. I mean, do you think back on, on some of those experiences and wonder like, you know, wow, how, how embedded this was even in your own upbringing and, and how prominent or prevalent these things are culturally? Yeah, I don't think I realized how embedded it was. I mean, I never saw anyone with a gun. I definitely went, you know, to clubs and things like that. People probably had guns there. I didn't even think about it, you know, but it it could have been any it could have been any night that that could have happened. You know, you mentioned how people are desensitized to this kind of thing. I mean, I Mm -hmm. wonder if, you know, because there are tangible pieces of this that you deal with all the time as a trauma surgeon, especially for those who are going through the morbidity of this, right? Where they have to deal with the aftermath of, of these things. Did you imagine yourself, particularly in, in your training, now going towards the advocacy part of this, of how to communicate, how to make research a real part of this? You know, Tell me a little bit about how your journey went from being someone who's providing the direct care to someone who's really looking at this from a macro level. Right. Uh, I, I think of it as injury prevention. I mean, I think of it as, you know, helmets for to prevent bike accidents and seat belts to prevent car accidents, right? I, I'm not involved at the political level, you know, like um, I get asked to join Moms Demand Action and things like that. And I, yeah, I think it's fantastic what they're doing, right. but I don't, I, I don't have the time, you know, to to maybe like go and lobby and things like that. But for some reason, I've never really been drawn to that side of it, the true advocacy, the lobbying, the talking to politicians and things like that. I do that every now and then as a, Mm -hmm. you know, like when they need a physician representative, but that's, that's not been my focus. And um, I don't know, I I applaud what they're doing. I just, I don't feel like I can make a difference in that. You know, I feel like it's, it's too big. (laughs) It's too big for me, but I can make a difference when I talk to people about storing guns safely or, or um, talking to pediatricians in the community about, you know, how to, how to talk to, you know, their patients about that or, or thing or doing research um, as my, you know, what my current uh, project is with actually looking at risk factors and things like that. I feel like I can make a tangible difference in, in that way. One thing that we talk about a lot is is the our communication strategies and even just asking, you know, how people are. So when you have dialogues about this with friends or um, with parents, even, and yeah. I'm sure you know, listeners of this podcast might be parents themselves of young children or, or even older children. The idea is is that you know how how should people have conversations about this, particularly when, from a prevention lens. You know, in the Indian community, I don't think that there's, uh, my sense is that gun ownership is lower. I, I don't know if, if I have the numbers on that for sure, but my right. sense is that gun ownership is lower. So it's not really something that comes up 
right? Yeah. And it's it's kind of foreign, but I, I definitely have friends that say that grew up in Texas um, from other cultures that say, oh yeah, I grew up with guns all over the house. There was guns on top of the microwave. There was <laughs> like guns yeah. under the you know by the bed, and that's shocking to me, you know. Yeah. And um, if anything the people that grew up with a lot of guns in the house and grew up shooting guns and stuff like that, it's part of their culture. And they, um, they're much more comfortable with around guns. Right. And so you put my kid with a gun, they wouldn't, they wouldn't know what to do with it. Right. And so um, I think that it's an interesting topic. So it it kind of feels far away in in that sense because you're not around it, but, um, but you know the, the whole question about do you ask if you drop your kids off for a sleepover do you yeah. ask if they have guns that is that is one that's very interesting to me um i don't know the best way to i i, I don't know have an answer to that it, it's not and yeah. it's something i've stayed away from with in research as well because i don't know what the right answer is um yeah. you know i feel like it can be offensive because it's like it, it, it's the same thing as asking someone do you have a gate around your pool Right. Or do you do you put your kids in car seats? To me, it's kind of like um, accusing the other person of not being a good parent for their own child. Human nature is to avoid confrontation. Right. Yeah. Um, right. Right. It's, but, it's that same it, confrontation that is hopefully being the vehicle for preventing injuries and, and, and death. But but I think if you know, if you go to if, if your child goes to a home that that has is one of these homes that has 10 guns lying around. Right. Then um, then you should at least definitely talk to them, the children, yeah. about about the, the dangers of that. And and, um, you know, and you, I think you would have to make a personal choice if you want to if you want your child to be around that. Tell me one thing, you know, I mean, such great news now that the the CDC and you know, really that there's a lot of momentum to funding research yes. for for this entire arena. Tell us a little bit about your work and, and your research and and how it's gotten both jump-started and, and what you're hoping for. Sure. Um, so one thing I, I noticed was um, that if you look at the stats, well, it started with, it started with the children that were um, shooting themselves unintentionally, or I'll use the word accidentally, although a lot of people have a problem with, with saying that it's, it's using the word accidentally, because if you say it's an accident, then the parents can kind of get out of it. There was take get out of responsibility from it. So people are trying to like to use the word unintentional, but um, not everyone may understand what that means. Okay. So accidental shooting is when a kid finds a gun sitting by the microwave or wherever it is, thinks, Oh, this looks interesting. And it's been shown that children, um, the, the first thing they do is they turn it towards themselves. Right. And it's just so easy to pull the trigger. And even if children have been taught to stay away from guns, young children have been taught to stay away from guns, they, they're just drawn to it. And maybe it's because the parents have told them not to touch it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, children always want to touch with their parents tell them not to touch. And so um, and so I started seeing these injuries, which are just devastating. They're devastating for the for the family. Right. Obviously, right. as well. And um, no one means for their children to get injured. It's not, you know, so it's um, I thought, gosh, surely there has to be. And if you look at gun violence in general, it's just, you know, when you look at street violence and this and that, there's so many factors that have to do with that. But when you look at accidental shootings, that's very easy to to prevent. It's like putting a helmet on if you ride a bike, or it's like wearing a seatbelt, right? It's like just lock your gun away and put your store your ammunition separately, or lock it safely in a place where the child can't find it. 
um, people often think their children don't know where their guns are, but they actually do know where their guns are. So, you know, that's just education and awareness and things like that. And so I started getting interested in that originally. And then when I, um, when I would look for, so if you, if you talk to policymakers or, or anyone about, about that, they say, well, there's only like, you know, 5% of those a year, you know, that's not, that's, that's, that's nothing. That's a very small part of the problem, which is true. It's actually, it actually happens a lot less than you would think. Right. Um, but, but then I started realizing where those stats were coming from. And they, they, the only stats that are out there for gun violence, because there's not a national database, okay, doesn't have to be reported. And so the only stats that are out there are deaths or fatalities. And so, but there's plenty of people that injure themselves with a gun, shoot themselves with a gun, but don't die, right? And some right. of them um, have horrible disabilities and things like that. And that still counts. That's still gun violence, right? Yeah. And so, um, so I, but so then in trying to look for the real numbers, I realize they don't exist. You can't mm -hmm. find them. And so, um, so that, so that's why I came up with this, this idea we have in trauma, um, every trauma center has to, um, have, it's a national thing where you basically put all your information to, into a national trauma data bank. And so I thought, what if you could get all the firearm injuries from the national trauma data bank, right? And that's injuries and deaths, whoever's, whoever comes to a trauma center. Yeah. Okay. And then you, and then you may have a little bit more of a comprehensive view, but in addition to that, you may miss the, the people that died directly and never made it to a trauma center. So those people go directly to the morgue. And so the, the, the whole idea is to basically get a more comprehensive um, overview of what the scope of the problem actually is by combining the data from the morgue and the, the, the people that come into the trauma centers to really, I, I think, just take this as like step one of trying to understand a public health problem is just defining the scope, right? Yeah. And so um, it's so, I, you know, it, it's how many kids or people are getting shot, you know, unintentionally or by homicide or by suicide, including the deaths and the, the non-deaths. And then I, and then from that, also looking for risk factors. So, for example, currently, Without what's known out there, and again, it only has to do with deaths, is you're more likely to be killed by homicide if you're black, live you know young, live in an urban area, um, you know maybe involved in a gang, and have to do with drugs. Okay, those yeah. are the risk factors. Everyone knows them, but and then the risk factors for suicide are white or Native American, old, older, the previous military service, depression. Um, you know, uh, and suburb live in the suburbs. Okay, so those are the known risk factors for for suicides. That's really interesting information, right? Because yeah. then you may say, okay, if I want to try to prevent suicides, I know the type of people I need to target, right? Yeah. So you may target people in the suburbs, or you may target mental 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 health there, or previous vets, or police officers, people who have guns, or um, you know stuff like that. And so my goal is to try to identify more risk factors for other things too. So for unintentional injuries for stray bullet. We have so many stray bullet shootings, like where kids are just caught in the line of fire. Yeah. Um, you know, bullets come through their house, through the wall, or they are out in the park, or they just, you know, the mom was trying to shoot the dad and the kid came in the middle or, you know, and so, and so, um, and, and so there's, there's just, so the, so, so I, I'm, I'm trying to find the risk factors for each shooting type of shooting intent, right? Mm -hmm. For for assault and for suicides and for unintentional injuries, 
law enforcement, even mass shootings, although I doubt we're going to have to get that much mass shooting data, um, in order to try to to have targeted interventions. So, and, and that includes zip codes and addresses. So we have all the addresses that come when they come to the trauma centers, when, you know, the ME office has all the addresses as well. And so we, ha- we have these experts in kind of like geospatial mapping that can right. um, map where these, you know, where these people live and, and where the shootings happen. And, and then when, and in those, you can actually get a lot of other kind of social determinants. So it's not just the neighborhoods that are bad. You can also, for, for example, map, um, uh, how close uh, you are to a li- liquor store or nightclub. Like, is that a risk factor? Which you right. assume it probably is. Or, um, you know, um, what percentage of that neighborhood is um, uh, mostly unemployed or has, right. you know, education no levels and education level. Yeah. All the kind of the census level stuff. Yeah. So I think all, all of that, is, the goal of all of that is to just, to, again, to try to identify risk factors, risk factors so you can actually intervene. So if you know that, your that that this these particular neighborhoods are more at risk right then you may try to find a common like what's a common theme in those neighborhoods you know what can you do i mean people have shown that even simple things like improving lighting helps yeah right like not having dark alleyways and or green spaces more green spaces may help interestingly or um you know, obviously having more, you know, I think it's helpful to the police because they can patrol those areas more if maybe they didn't know of them, for example. Um, so specific things that you can you can do to try to... And being able to then test and iterate, you know, how, how you're going to be able to solve some of these issues or at least address them. And, yeah. you know, just in the same way that even like food security and finding food deserts or for food... Um, you know, islands, so to speak, right? So it's sort of similar tracking with that. And and with the, you know, you're an educator and in, in thinking of sort of the outcomes of this, um, do you envision uh, a future where now that you have this data and the identification of risks, that people can get really creative and innovative yeah. with how to solve some of these problems. Oh, absolutely. That's that's step two, right? So step two is figuring out now you have now you have that. Now it's trying to figure out what the interventions are, right? It's right. kind of like that the public health process. Sure. And then um, and also I think it would be useful for um, for policy, right? To to drive policy. So if you can if you can give the policymakers real numbers, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not just you know three percent of kids that shoot themselves. It's actually ten percent or whatever the number right. ends up being. Then. Um, then that might convince lawmakers to, you know, pass some laws that are. Tell me one thing. I mean, you know, I know it's a big deal. You know, it's a big deal. But, you know, maybe share for those who who don't understand some of the history behind this. You know, how big of a deal is it that research like yours is is being funded again? Oh, it's a huge deal. I mean, you know, um, how do you think that you know, scientists found vaccinations for COVID or or cures for cancer or even um, I mean, uh, car accidents, motor vehicle crashes used to be much worse until people, you know, started figuring out where they were happening, why they were happening, and you know, the, the figured out the how to improve the highway systems and improve seat belts and car seats. It's still a major problem in many developing countries, right? And all that comes from research, and so um, data. But I guess right? the chicken and egg part of this is is that if you can't generate the data and if you yeah. can't actually produce the numbers. Right. And it's so hard to actually make the, and affect the change, um, exactly. you know, yeah. or like for, for other colleagues, you know, with yours and do you expect and hope that this will just continue to prompt even more oh, yeah. search and generation? I, absolutely. I, I think that there's definitely a hope that 
that it will keep getting refunded, you know, that these kinds of things will keep getting refunded every year, that this isn't just going to be a, another 20 years where we're waiting for right. another round of funding. <laughs> so. yeah. No, which is fantastic. And I mean, you know, one thing that gives me a little pause, because we, we started talking about this at the very beginning, which is, you know, how people have become sort of, I wouldn't say, you know, hopeless is one word or, or numb yeah. to sort of yeah. this, this idea for sure. But especially as as a researcher and someone who's actually looking at this from a longitudinal perspective, right? I mean, you're looking at this as a public health person um, mm -hmm. and as a trauma surgeon, thinking about mm -hmm. this not only from the immediate parts of delivery of care, but also of generating data so that you could produce policy and and therefore yeah. enact all the change. What brings you, you know, optimism about this, right? I mean, it's so easy to be just, hey, you know, <laughs> I give up personally brings you optimism about this particular topic? I don't know that I have a lot of optimism <laughs> yet. Um, I think um, I, I think it remains to be seen, you know. Um, yeah. Aside from me, there's many, many people working on many different facets of violence prevention, and everyone has really unique ideas. And so I guess if, you know, if that continues, and if we have an administration that is more receptive to pushing for change, you know, yeah. then, um, then, yeah. Then in the okay. past, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think, you know, even just the idea that this conversation is generating financial support, um, right. certainly garnering um, more and more of a groundswell, hopefully, of, of researchers and policy makers and eventually advocates to, to help with these kinds yeah. of ideas. And I think it's, I think it's the one thing that can be bipartisan is yeah. that both sides listen to because even the NRA, even, you know, fervent believers in the Second Amendment do believe in safety and gun yes. safety, do believe in research, you know, do believe in things like that. So I think it's instead of this never ending battle of the sides where people are never going to understand each other, um, it's a different tactic, I guess. Have you found that because of the idea of making it a public health issue and making it about health and safety, particularly of children, mm -hmm. is that an automatic accelerator for building coalitions? Have you found? Oh, it's yeah. No, it's it's about kids and it's about kids' safety and their and their lives. Yes. You absolutely have to frame it that way. I'm from Texas. Um, I would not. Nothing would. Yeah, there would be no support for for what I was doing if it if I was super political about it, and that's why I'm not. You know, I, I do think it's about safety. I do think it's about um, public health. Yeah. Um, tell me this, uh, Bindi. You're someone who uh, a lot of times, and and you know, on a day to day, even minute to minute basis, are are faced with critical um, decision making situations, and you have to yeah. communicate so effectively with so many different stakeholders both in the clinical environment and the non-clinical environment, but mm -hmm. how do you as both a trauma surgeon and a researcher and someone who feels so passionately about an issue like this, how, how do you develop and cultivate trust and confidence in, in your work and, and in this issue as being, you know, an imperative? Right. That's a good question. I mean, you have to have support from others who believe the same thing. I think that that's really important. I mean, you just have to believe in values and what you stand for. I mean, I don't like seeing kids shot. I don't, I don't like seeing adults shot. You know, people don't 
I think the lay public sometimes doesn't understand what being shot means. If you watch movies, for example, all they show is like it's a small hole and you take the bullet out and you're done. Well, first of all, taking the bullet out is absolutely the wrong thing. It makes things a lot worse. People don't get that. And people don't realize that the bullet is just the tip of the iceberg, right? There is a much... I mean, if the bullet is this small, the blast effect is this wide. And so it rips through a body and the bigger the caliber of the bullet is, the more organs are injured. And so I don't know. I honestly wish the media would talk about that more. Right. Mm -hmm. So we see it. We see bodies being completely ripped up. We spent hours and hours in the operating room trying to help. And then they may die or be in the hospital for a really long time with complications. I just wonder if some of this, this, opposition to that is because people don't realize that, you know, you know, from, from the vantage point of being able to know how passionate you are about this, know how uh, your research is going. And we're also very grateful and excited for some of this data to come out and and help us to develop some of these um, narratives a little bit better. Bindi, thank you so much for all you do. You know, we're we're again so grateful for for everything that that you're doing for not only your local community but for all of us nationally. Well, thank you so much for having me on this show and um, giving me a chance to to talk about it. And um, thank you. Thanks so much, Bindi, for everything that you do. Please visit gunviolencearchive.org to look at more daily and cumulative data. This past weekend was Wear Orange Weekend to promote gun violence awareness. And we all can learn a lot more at everytownsupportfund.org and momsdemandaction.org. Till next time, I'm Abhay Darnikar. Hi, this is Raginder, and you can check out ruckusavenueradio.com for more information and for the latest on station programming and more. 